You're listening to STEMcast, brought to you by McGill iGEM. Today, we are joined by Dr. Drew Endy, an associate professor of bioengineering at Stanford and a former professor at MIT. Dr. Endy is one of the most influential people in the field of synthetic biology, having helped start initiatives like iGEM, launching majors in bioengineering at both Stanford and MIT, serving on advisory committees for the WHO, the U.S. government, and too many other for us to list here. Dr. Endy is an amazing person, passionate about enabling biology to help our planet flourish. Thank you for being here, and we can get right into the discussion. So the first question we have is, how would you define synthetic biology? What is this technology? Why is it so powerful? And what is kind of the most crazy impact you've seen come from this technology? Those are three questions, Dan. Indeed, they are. Right. Let's start with what is synthetic biology? Yeah. Let's Let's start with what is synthesis? Um, synthesis um, in its ancient meaning has to do with putting things together, composition. You know, pick your favorite language and go back in time, right? If you go back into the lineage of the Greeks, you get synthesis with a U instead of a Y. And it's such a beautiful word. Uh, a A putting together composition a putting together so what happens when you put the word synthesis in front of biology well it's putting together biology composition in and of and with biology and so synthetic biology is about putting together biology Um, depending exactly where you come from in terms of your interest and tribe There are going to be many different diverse and wonderful flavors of synthetic biology, but at its root, it's putting things together. Um, So that for me is how I think about it. Um, I think it's related to other things, but different. So I don't think synthetic biology and engineering biology are the same thing. Um, I don't think that biosynthesis and synthetic biology are the same thing. Um, and and you know but it's like that just leads to more questions uh which is valid um but anyway synthetic biology is putting together biology a putting a it's so fun a putting together biology putting together biology yeah and now for the second and third questions um one b and one c yeah okay um what about synthetic biology is so powerful and lets us do so much with it and I guess one C is what's the most crazy impactful or what are some very impactful applications of synthetic biology that you'd like to share that you're personally very excited about? Well, the impact of biology is where the impact of synthetic biology comes from, right? If biology didn't matter, putting together biology wouldn't matter, right? So don't I don't think it has to be too complicated. You know, it's like, Why is synthetic biology important? Because we're putting together biology and biology is important. And it's it's hard to overstate how important biology is. Any human being listening to this is biology, right? Um, But of course, there's a lot more biology than that. Um, There are things about synthetic biology unique to synthesis that make it additionally important and there's two i'd like to highlight they seem a little bit um abstract at first but you got to be patient with me because i'm trying to get to an answer that's that's like asking somebody why is the internet important and and so maybe we should start with that as an example well why is the internet important And what is the superpower of the internet that makes it important? And at the low root level of the internet, what it does is it allows for a decoupling of information from a position in space-time, and then you can move that information around and reconnect it to a different position in space-time. So you could have a recording where you are and store it on the internet and bring it back where you are, or you could move it somewhere else, right? So at at the low level, the superpower of the internet is a decoupling and recoupling of information in space-time, right? And and when you think about the internet in that way, 
like that's it but it's it's also pretty young you know like the internet's still new and and even though we encounter as it is commercialized and industrialized in its current form like we mostly haven't figured out everything to do with what it means to decouple and recouple information in space time we're still learning we're still babies with that okay so now let's come to synthetic biology um what is what is the superpower uh, uh the fundamental impacts of synthetic biology um well let's start with the superpower biology and then we're going to link it to the synthesis side the superpower biology so far as i can tell is uh, all atoms are local um the leaves on the tree don't come from a factory in detroit or wherever the the leaves on the tree don't wait for an executive order from president biden or some other minister to start growing right the leaves on the tree grow where they're going to be because the photons arrive the carbon arrives the nitrogen arrives the hydrogen and oxygen arrives the sulfur arrives where the leaves are on the tree are going to be right so the the superpower biology is is it grows where the biology is going to be because all atoms are local um that's really interesting and and that's going to have massive ramifications like oh yeah the bioeconomy is not the fourth industrial revolution or the fifth industrial revolution or whatever the world economic forum's talking about that's wrong actually like biology is going to be the first biologizing revolution cuz not about globalization it's about deglobalization about decentralized distributed manufacturing okay so so it's like hmm all right now now we now that we have as an uh, an argument or a position at least mine um for what the superpower biology is from an engineer's perspective let's link it into synthesis um well synthesis is about putting things together it's about putting biology together at the core dogma of biology is the central dog ma central dog the c dog um and that's dna rna proteins and so we've got dna synthesis right and dna synthesis is interesting because it lets you go from bits to atoms for dna sequence of dna on a computer or in your head and then you print the dna from scratch that's bits to atoms dna print um and of course we have we've got um dna sequencing that lets you go from atoms to bits right and so dna sequencing and dna synthesis are dna read write and that makes genetic material and genetic information fungible or interconvertible um okay <laughs> so what we did just there is is set up a connection between the internet and biology we've got the superpower of the internet and the superpower of biology so we can move information around space time that's the internet superpower and all atoms are local that's the the biology superpower so now we can imagine the bionet where if synthetic biology was fully realized you could download and grow with biocode and make what you need where you are locally right it's like oh and and so that's that's just like profoundly qualitatively different um so that's one reason why synthesis is important at a root level another reason it's important at a root level is when you put biology together you have the option of escaping the three constraints that limit all life on earth all life on earth is constrained by the life that came before lineage we come from our parents we're related to them right um to continue to exist life forms need to be able to reproduce that's a constraint it's hard to be able to reproduce it limits the designs of viable systems moreover in a changing environment life forms need to be able to evolve on an evolutionary time scale that's an additional constraint if i can put things together from scratch i remove all three constraints the life that exists on this planet as diverse and wonderful as it is is a smidgen of the potential life that could exist just like we're down in the bottom of the earth's gravity well we're also down in the bottom of the earth's life well and via synthesis ultimately the construction of new life forms from scratch without these constraints we can access the full diversity of life okay so that's the second profoundly important thing related to synthesis if you want me to flip it around i'll add one more which is the applied layer um sure. Biology is doing distributed manufacturing on a planetary scale. It's harvesting 90 terawatts of energy through photosynthesis. Civilization runs on 20 terawatts. So biology's got four and a half times as much juice as we need to provision for 10 billion humans without trashing the place. 
So buyer before the time you gentlemen retire or the iGemmers retire, buyer before the year 2050, if we actually got our act together and did things right, we could enable a flourishing planetary scale civilization without trashing the place. Right. So like that's that's this that's the table stakes. Um, but but why does this why does this stuff matter? What was the what was question one C again? Oh, the craziest thing going on? Yeah. Um well, I mean, look, I think this decade we're gonna show how to construct new life forms. Um, you know, what that's good for, I'm not so worried about. Um, you know, when people ask me what type of cell we're gonna build, I'll say it's an American cell. Right. It's not like E. coli or bacterium. It's American. Maybe you could build a Canadian cell. Um, um, but, you know, like my favorite example uh, this month is I really like what the company Microworks is doing. They take white rot wood fungus, feed it wood chips and grow a surrogate for animal leather using mushrooms by taking mycelial mass, differentiating it into a mushroom skin peeling it off, putting it through a tanning process. And just this month or next month, they're dedicating um, a large pilot scale factory in Union County, South Carolina, next to the forest there to demonstrate that you can make this material at scale and get it into handbags and other you know, consumer goods that require leather with no mammals involved in the manufacturing process. Mushrooms instead of mammals making the leather. Uh, so that that seems pretty good. That's, that's a very exciting answer and very, uh, I guess, implicational for kind of where we're headed into our future. I just want to follow up a little and try to simplify maybe the the discussion a little by maybe complicating it first. But in terms of how we actually engineer with biology and how we build and up all these parts of biology together, what would you say are the foundations of engineering biology? And if you can explain their relevance simply for us to get from where we are now, to actually being able to take these local bits, bring them together and create new life forms or new features that we can use. I'll try, you know, bioengineering as an engineering discipline in the year 2023 remains immature. Um, so it's a work in progress. Um, a lot of the ideas you're alluding to were articulated in the mid to late 1990s and codified in the early 2000s. Um, you can track down the 2003 DARPA ISAT synthetic biology study. Um, I, I, it's a free link. I can drop it in the chat. Um, or the foundations for engineering biology paper I did in 2005 reflecting the ideas of 50 or so people. Um, but but not even with that acknowledgement to take too much credit for it, because basically what we were doing at the time was to look at the history of engineering across all domains of engineering, going back thousands of years, and asking, well, what had to happen as people figured out how to take different materials, different natural substrates, and turn them into engineerable substrate, engineerable domains, whether it be structural engineering, civil engineering, bridge building, or mechanical engineering and machining, or electrical engineering and electronics and computers. Um, like anywhere in the history of engineering, what are the meta lessons that could be abstracted from those historical practices and tried out in living matter, right? So that's the backdrop. And from the work we did 20 years ago, the three ideas that came forward that we thought were most important were to enable coordination of labor such that what somebody does in one place could be reused more reliably by somebody else in another place or time. So coordination of labor around measurements, around machining of objects, uh, around uh, models that represent objects. Um, so if you could get coordination of labor going, you know, it's it's just like, wow, coordination of labor makes the difference between somebody being able to build a hut that they can live in versus a collective of people being able to build a cathedral or a university, right? So that's, that, or, or a bridge, right? My favorite historical example of this is actually the aqueduct in Segovia, Spain, made over 2000 years ago. And if you track down the photo of it or visit, 
you can see it's made out of standardized blocks of stone. And that allows people to stack them up very high, allows some people to make the blocks in the quarry, move them, other people stack it. If the aqueduct needs to be repaired thousands of years later, we can repair it by replacing a standard stone with another standard stone, right? But, you know, so standards are about coordination of labor. Um, so that was one big idea. How do we get coordination of labor going in biotechnology workflows so that what one person works on doesn't only lead to their art project, right? Um, or their particular project, but it supports the accumulation of materials that other people can benefit from. Um, the second idea is um, called abstraction, functional abstraction. Um, it's pretty easy. Anybody who's ever studied biology, um, even as a student in high school or younger, quickly learns how many things there are to learn. Biology is really complicated. And so how are we ever going to keep track of everything? How are we ever going to engineer stuff? Abstraction is an engineering tool that gets used to make carefully simplified representations of objects that have themselves been simplified so that it's easier to use them without sweating all the details, right? Everybody experiences this all the time. For example, if you have a touchscreen mobile phone and you want to send a text message to a parent, you're just using your fingers and touching the screen. But underneath that is a whole bunch of powerful computing functions that are being compiled down all the way into bits, zeros and ones that are then being represented as voltage signals and packets going through a network. But the person sending the text message by touching their phone doesn't need to know any of those details. You wouldn't even need to know that the computer is a digital computer, right? And that's because in, in, in electronics and computing, there's this 10 or more layer stack of functional abstraction that goes from high level, easy to understand gestures all the way down to the physics of the transistor. Right. So if I wanted to make a, a logic gate inside a, a T cell for controlling a therapy, do I have to know everything about DNA binding proteins? Or can somebody just give me a logic gate? Right. And so abstraction is the fundamental research to say, well, how do I make a logic gate inside a cell, whether it be a plant cell or immune cell or bacterial cell or you name it, such that somebody else could use that without needing to know how the darn thing works, what even what molecules are inside it? Right. So, so that was our second idea, abstraction. How do you manage complexity in biology from an engineering perspective? Um, and then the third idea, if you could get coordination of labor and abstraction working, is decoupling or disaggregation of workflow. Think about architecture. You could, you could be a brilliant architect and you design a building, but you might be pretty bad at building buildings. And so you might need to hire like a really good structural engineer to make sure your design's not going to fall over and then a really great general contractor to implement the design once the structural engineer signs off on it. And then maybe you need a building inspector to make sure the, the workers did a good job, right? And so in modern engineering workflows, one person does not have to be an expert in every aspect of the project. And so that's workflow disaggregation or decoupling. Um, so in biotechnology, do you need to know how to design the system and build it? And for a lot of biotechnology products, projects, the answer today is yes. Like you've got to be a genius designer and a genius builder. That's that's That like limits the number of people who can participate by a lot. And it limits what any one person can do by a lot. So our three fundamental engineering ideas, which are not unique to biology, are coordination of labor, management of complexity, and workflow disaggregation. Coordination of labor rises via standards. Functional abstraction allows for management of complexity and decoupling or, or disaggregation allows for, you know, all this to work in a, um, a more distributed sort of way. Um, these ideas turn out to be controversial technically, like, can you do it? Um, um, the answer turns out to be yes, like we've proven over the last 20 years, they're not impossible. Um, yet they're mostly poorly developed, I would say, 20 years later, right? So, so um you know, we've not seen the progress in biotechnology at the fundamental engineering level like we've seen in electronics. You know, you can't go to a store and buy professionally validated standard biological parts of devices with a few exceptions. Like you can get restriction enzymes and a couple other things, but but it's it's not like in electronics or in mechanical engineering. We go to the hardware store, 
and like a whole bunch of nuts and bolts and fasteners and they all work mostly right um but anyway those those are the the basics of it from an engineer's perspective that's really excited exciting and i think um abstraction is the big challenge from a synthetic from a synthetic biology researcher's perspective because a system is incredibly incredibly complex you mentioned for example t cells if you want to create a logic gate in t cells it's hard to do that without knowing everything about it how close would you say we are to full abstraction and do we need full full abstraction what does that look like to be able to you know push forward synthetic biology to the max um and how, how close are we to the level of abstraction that we need to democratize synthetic biology to ask anyone who wants to take a, a stab at it so yeah, um, so just in the chat, I dropped the link to the 2003 study, but I also put in a, a link to a, a 2020 paper, um, Biosynthesis of Medicinal Tropane Alkaloids in Yeast. And there's two authors on this paper, Prashant Srinivasan, a Canadian, and Christina Schmolka, a Californian, and my wife. So um, I'm going to be hopelessly biased. But what's interesting about this paper to me is there's two authors on it, one graduate student and one professor. And I know the professor didn't do any work in the lab. So one person did all the work on this paper. And this is an interesting paper from a technical perspective, because if you go to figure one, you see all this biochemistry in the paper and it's all engineered, it's all synthetic biology. One person did all this work in about a year. Now, Prashant, it, maybe he's the world's best metabolic engineer. And that might actually be true. He's actually amazing. But still, it's an incredible amount of work. Um, so how did that happen? And if you look into the details of this paper, you'll see he used DNA synthesis to get somebody else to make the DNA for him. He used modularity around biosynthetic pathways to build a very complicated 30 plus enzyme pathway out of five or six modules, reusing things that had already been proven to work, right? And so, aha, you know, like in the year 2020, one PhD student's able to do a almost three dozen enzyme pathway in a person year of work. If you go back in time and you find the paper in in around 2006, when Christina's PhD advisor, Jay Kiesling, is doing the Artemis and biosynthesis work in yeast, I don't know, there's 20 or 30 authors on the paper. They're wrangling three enzymes. It took them $25 million of R&D to do that three enzyme pathway, right? So it's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like within two decades, maybe just over a decade, right? Certain classes of bioengineering projects have been changed because decoupling, disaggregation of work, coordination of labor, reuse of materials, functional abstraction have been shown to not be impossible by world-leading researchers. Now, that last qualification by world-leading researchers means that this type of capacity and expertise is not widely available. Like it mostly doesn't exist. It's mostly not accessible. It's just a demonstration of what could be possible for the first time. And we're only of order a thousand days away from this demonstration, right? And coming out of a pandemic, which is still ongoing, right? So, so, you know, I was just going back in time and pulling some of the talks I gave in 2005 and 2007 from the old labs archive at MIT. I was like, what was I saying back then when I was speaking in Tianjin or Tsinghua? And talking about making a parts factory for making high quality debugged functional parts and devices for synthetic biology. Um, and we mostly haven't done that. Like we mostly haven't been able to organize the resources as yet to do the hard underlying engineering work to make bioengineering more reliably engineerable and make those capacities more widely accessible. And I have mixed feelings about that, to say the least. Um, but I am confident in the position that these are good ideas and there's enough evidence to show that it's not impossible to make them work. 
And it's pretty clear that when you make them work, they're ridiculously powerful because the promise of the ideas manifests and so on. But we should have a, you know, either now or anybody listening to this, a careful reflection about why is it so difficult to organize resources to advance the fundamentals of engineering living matter versus getting resources to work on an application of engineering living matter. And it's it's obvious that the answer is when you work on an application, you're curing a disease or saving a species or the climate and doing some heroic work for an emergency that's desperate, and that's valid. But I, I don't think we've ever experienced an emerging technology where the application layer is so desperate and simultaneously the underlying engineering research needs are so profound that there's this unbelievably lopsided misinvestment of resources. Everything's being thrown at the application layer and we have to choose one or two things up there. And because of that, we don't build out the foundations or we struggle to build out the foundations. It would be as if you were a computer scientist student or faculty member, and you could only get funding to work on mobile phone apps that would help patients at the hospital. And if you went to the funding agency and you said, hey, I'd like to make a new compiler or I'd like to make a new operating system, they'd say, no, why would you want that? We've got patients who are sick. Make a mobile phone app to help the doctor, right? Like imagine if computer science was only like that from a research perspective. And that's kind of what it's like to be a, a bioengineer at a research university. It's very hard to do the fundamental engineering work because the support for it's not really there. And, and to be fair, it's like, shame on me, shame on us for not figuring out how to explain how important the fundamental work is. But it's but it's an interesting current to swim up or headwind to encounter and then learn how to navigate it. That's very insightful. We, well, you've contributed a lot, especially to bioeconomy reports and more administrative work that is kind of aiming to push the bioeconomy and the bionet is part of why you're doing in that sense, they're trying to shift more funding to foundational research to enable more foundational advances to occur that later down the line will reap more benefits? Or how does that sort of manifest itself in what you're currently working on to try to make this sort of research more accessible and more easy to do for more people? I think we, I, I appreciate the question, Dan. Um, you know, I think I think we need to be careful to frame and understand what's going on. Right at a at a cultural, political, social level. So when synthetic biology first started popping up above the radar in its modern form in the early 2000s in the United States, at least, you know that's that was approximately 2003, 2004. Right, the DARPA study I briefed the DARPA director in October of 2003. Synthetic biology 1.0, the first international meeting we organized at MIT in 2004. And you know, America in the United States, we had just experienced the 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 airplane attacks and the anthrax attacks. And the anthrax attacks were bioterror attack. Um, and so these ideas of synthetic biology initially were received in Washington, DC within the context of a terror regime, you know, like struggling to navigate these types of attacks. And so imagine a younger naive-er version of me going, I wanna make biology easy to engineer. What people heard was this guy wants to make bioterrorism easier, right? And so instead of getting more funding for DNA synthesis, I actually helped contribute to the pulling back of funding for DNA synthesis, if you can believe it. You know, like instead of getting more public investment, I got negative public investment, right? So some years go by and starting in the late 2000s, Rob Carlson, my old housemate and a physicist, and then Mary Maxson, a geneticist, a yeast biologist, they bootstrapped this reframing of the political narrative around bioeconomy. Like, oh, actually, you know, biotechnology is about jobs and money. It's not only about bioterrorism. And thank goodness for that. Like both Rob and Mary deserve a lot of credit because they brought, I'll, I'll be parochial, I'll speak to the United States. They, they brought to Washington uh, a complementary narrative that's positive. Right, or could be perceived as positive. And so now, you know, it's 15 years later, right, 2023, and this narrative of the bioeconomy has been advanced through four presidential administrations in the US 
sufficient to get an executive order signed by President Biden in late 2022. And it's like amazing. Thank goodness for that. Right. But now we need to be careful. Because what are the limits of this framing? As powerful as it is, what is it not good at? What does a bioeconomic framing fail to tackle? And it turns out there's a lot, right? So, so for example, um, a friendly question. Again, I'll just use my nation. My I'm a citizen of the United States. Like so, so like what would make a bioeconomy American? Or you could ask, what would make a bioeconomy Canadian? Is the thing that makes it American that it's in the 50 states? Is it where the jobs and money are? Is that what makes it American or Canadian or French or Chinese? Or is it different than that, right? And I'm pretty sure the answer is it's more than where it's located. So in the United States, for example, you know, we could say, hmm, well, biotechnology, it's about life. It's about medicine, food, fuel, shelter, materials, right? Things we need to live. But the American bioeconomy would also be about not only life, but liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Our holy words, if you will, from the Declaration of Independence. Right? What does that mean? How does how, well, how do we do that? Right? And suddenly, when you talk about it that way, and you go back and it's like, well, hmm, is the bioeconomy as we're investing in it and we're thinking about it, is it is it inclusive of these broader aspects? And like mostly no, not not yet would be the fair way to say it. Um, Another thing to say is um, words matter because they have the power of shaping our instincts, whether we know it or not, right? So it's like, oh, we're going to industrialize biology. This is the fourth industrial revolution. Okay, so if we adopt that mindset, then what we're going to expect is we're going to expect to make factories. We're going to expect to have big piles of capital and big factories and lots of workers and big fermenters. And we're gonna have industrialized biotechnology. The practice and metaphor rising in England with the steam age and industrialization, right? And maybe we need a lot of that, right? I'm not arguing 100% against that, but how do we reconcile that with the fact that biology is the ultimate distributed manufacturing platform? that all atoms are local, right? Like, they, like, oh, maybe, in, maybe industrializing biology is not the right way to do it. Not, not even the right thing to think about. Maybe we should be doing the opposite. And then you just start playing with the words and they sound strange. Like we're gonna biologize industry, right? Or we're gonna biologize a democracy. And then it's like, well, I don't know what that means would be a fair response, but then you have to dig in and figure that out. So, so I just wanted to give a little bit of the historical context, right? When synthetic biology first showed up on the scene, it was received as a engine of terror, an accelerant of bioterror. And then jobs and money came in as a complementary narrative and it's ascended and it's what we've got. But it's a, it's a limited narrative in and of itself, right? Unless we're very careful about what we mean by bioeconomy, right? And, and it's not unique to biotechnology and synthetic biology, but if you only think about your society through the lens of the economy, people aren't going to be happy necessarily, right? There's a lot of other things that go uh, into having a healthy functioning society and a healthy, meaningful life. Um, so I'll pause there. Um, but 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 anyway, I actually, I won't pause there. I'm going to add on another thing. We face some conundrums. Um, one of the conundrums is as much as we've accomplished around this repoliticization a positive one, jobs and money, we're still failing to help the public, the citizens, and the elected officials and representatives understand how important biology is. Like in the United States, we can get a chips act passed and you know 50 gigabucks for chip fabs, but we really can't move that type of money for biotechnology. The public treasure is not really being spent appropriately to help advance biotechnology. Yes, we get a lot of money to the NIH and ARPA-H, like cure the diseases now, it's all that stuff. You know, but we can't get the National Institutes of Standards and Technology to get a couple hundred million dollars to make standards for biotechnology. You know, they're the place in the US that makes the meter and the kilogram and the second work for us. 
standard jars of peanut butter and sawdust for calibrating your factories, right? But we can't get like we can't get the metrology right for biology because we can't invest in mist, right? Which is a budget dust compared to other things. So so as 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 much as we've been able to move, we're really still overdriven by industrialization and applications. And we're we're missing the bigger picture by orders of magnitude. So the job, the job's not done by a lot. Uh, so you mentioned that we still have a long way in making biology more understandable to administrators, government officials, and people who are at the end of the day responsible for helping move this funding and helping us really progress biology. How can we go about making biology more understandable, making it more accessible, making it easier for people to understand, therefore trust, and therefore support? Um, <laughs> well, have you heard of bioterror? We were just talking about bioterror. Yeah. Yes. Have you heard of bioterror? No. Mistakes in the laboratory? Like, where did SARS-CoV-2 come from? Maybe it was a lab accident. All right, that would be bio-error. Um, have you heard of bio-scarer? No. Yeah, it's a it's a really esoteric word. Paul DeMarinas, a professor of art here at Stanford, taught it to me. Um, have you heard of um, arachnophobia? Fear yes. of spiders? Yeah. Um, and what's the word for fear of falling from heights? Um, I'm, I have that fear of falling from heights. Um, so, you know, I don't know why I'm afraid of heights, but I am. And I could make up a story, but I don't really know. It's an instinctive fear. And so bioscare is like that. It's an instinctive fear of biotechnology. What if that's real? What if a significant fraction of our friends and family and colleagues and fellow citizens have an instinctive fear of biotechnology. Seems pretty reasonable to me. Like this stuff's scary. We're tinkering with life. We don't know what we're doing. We might get it wrong. It's just it's just like instinctively scary to begin with. Like because biology is scary. It's terrifying. Right. So what if bio scare exists? Um, what should we do? Should we acknowledge that it exists? Or should we sweep it under the rug? Better to acknowledge it than sweep it yeah. under the rug and push. But guess what we did 50 years ago? In 1975, 48 years ago. We had the recombinant DNA meeting at Asilomar to talk about emerging biotechnology for the first time. And people were afraid of it. And the scientists mostly got together and talked about it. And they didn't think it was as dangerous as many people thought, but they admitted it could be. And so they operationalized a framework that said, we're gonna put genetic engineering research into biocontainment laboratories, biosafety level one, biosafety level two, biosafety level three, and so on. And that was lauded as a great success in self-regulation and policymaking, because it allowed for genetic engineering to get going and do useful things, like make recombinant insulin widely available for treating diabetes. And so the juice was worth the squeeze. It was a good compromise. But hidden in that move, so there's been a lot written about the success of the Asilomar meeting from 1975, but what hasn't been written is the failures and costs of that meeting. And one of the hidden costs of that meeting is an implicit acknowledgement that biotechnology is scary, but then uh, pushing it and hiding it into biosafety labs without actually addressing the instinctive fear that still exists. And so I would offer and diagnose that we exist within a culture that has a significant underlying current of bioscare, an instinctive fear of biotechnology. And instead of bringing that out into the open, we've swept it under the rug and hidden the biotechnology away, which is an implicit acknowledgement that it is scary because we have to hide it away. It's dangerous, right? Um, and that's where we are. So 
although I'm afraid of heights, I will drive across the Golden Gate Bridge. And when I'm driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, I'm thinking about falling into the Pacific Ocean. And if the kids are in the car, we're all going to die. It's not great, but I will drive across, as they call it, the GGB, the GGB, right? Because operationally, we as a collective, a group of people have created a system that allows me to overcome my fear, to become courageous, right? So that's very interesting. The gift of fear, fear's gift, is the opportunity to become collectively courageous. But to seize upon that opportunity, you have to let people talk about being afraid. I have to be able to admit I'm afraid of heights without being ignored or laughed at. Now, if I go online and I start tweeting or whatever it's called these days, you know, that I'm afraid of GMOs, I'm going to get hundreds of Nobel laureates yelling at me, telling me that I'm committing a crime against humanity because genetic engineering is needed to keep people alive, to keep kids from going blind due to vitamin deficiency. They're right from a utilitarian perspective. But, but just see how awkward that is. If I express a fear of GMO, instead of somebody going, I understand, that's reasonable. I'm not laughing or yelling at you. Instead, what's going to happen is I'm going to be shouted down by the utilitarians who are right, logically, technically right, but emotionally and politically totally wrong, right? And they don't understand how wrong they are. Um, so, so what would it mean to have a biotic society, uh, a civilization, a culture that fully understands and embraces both the fear and the joy of, of fully realized, manifested, dispersed, and distributable biotechnologies? Um, you know, like, I, you know, I got a commensal microorganism that lives in my nose that's naturally surveilling what pathogens are infecting me and changes the color of my mucus depending you know it's like bright purple if i've got a corona and it's bright orange if i've got an influenza and my body's just telling me what's going on right i don't have to send my and it's real-time runtime embedded diagnostics it's not testing it's surveillance i don't have to send my samples to some lab like like i can imagine that world um i'd like to eat bioengineered salmonella from roy curtis's team you know, called salmonella, and that's how I vaccinate myself. No needles, right? Like fully biotic technologies. Um, you know, how about a biosecurity at birth? Baby, B-A-B, baby for babies. You know, like what if we could make a human artificial chromosome and any kid who's born via IVF, right, gets a synthetic human artificial chromosome installed and it propagates into all their cells and it expresses guide RNA targeting the top 100 pathogens that infect humans, right? And it's not in the germline, you know, it's it's disposable with respect to the human lineage and species, not changing what it means to be human, but it's just like biosecurity at birth. So I don't have to worry about any infectious diseases ever during that lifetime, right? It's like, you know, I can keep going down these examples and inevitably, for each person, I'll cross the threshold, which is like, nope, right? Like, that's crazy, right? And, and but, but like, what would it mean to become a biotic society where we could figure these things out and talk about it, right? And dads and moms with their kids were excited about making their own vaccines and giving them to their kids. Because then you would know what your kids were getting. They want the good stuff. Homemade vaccines is the good stuff. No crazy electronic chips in your vaccine if you make it yourself. Right. You don't have to worry about what Bill Gates is doing. Right. Because you did it. Right. Like, want to know what's going in my kids? It's organic homemade vaccines. Right. So, so how do we get to that? Right. And I think it starts with acknowledging the fear, not laughing at it, not sweeping it under the rug. And then I think programmatically, we could do a lot of things. I think about what the Carnegie uh, Foundation did a century ago when they decided that literacy was important for citizenship and opportunity. And they wanted to um, manifest that by greatly increasing the number of public libraries. And so they created the Carnegie formula, which said, our private foundation will philanthropically support the construction costs for the building and the buying of the books. And any town that wants this capital has to promise that they're going to take care of the building and staff it with a librarian from the tax revenue. And if you put those two things together, you'd unlock the money to get your library public library. 
And because of that simple Carnegie formula for public libraries, the United States, we got like a thousand libraries in a decade or so, right? Now, what if we just replace the letter I in library, the first letter I, with the letter A? Libraries. We're gonna have public libraries. And we could even do the same for the profession. In addition to librarians, we're gonna have librarians. Professionals who help people understand biotechnology as a civic opportunity so that people can become citizens of the bioeconomy, citizens of a flourishing biotic society. So how do we get a thousand public libraries in the United States, in Canada, in France, in Germany, in China? In the 2020s, there's plenty of money, right? plenty of philanthropy, but how do we organize it? And how do we do it in a way that's socially constructive and responsible? Well, we've got to create this profession of the librarian, the person you trust as the honest broker between knowledge and capacities and your ignorance, right? And the person that society trusts to be the responsible broker, right? Oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, so these aren't, you know, these two ideas of, of acknowledging Bioscare and becoming courageous as a cultural level opportunity. And then this infrastructure around libraries and librarians, those aren't sufficient, right? But they're examples of moves that would allow us to become biotic as a civilization, right? A, a, a set of peoples who embrace biotechnology, who fall in love with biotechnology, even though it's scary. Like it's scary to fall in love, right? It's, you know, so like, how do we fall in love with biotechnology? Hmm. We could do it. We could do it this decade. What do you think are the, the major steps of that? I mean, how do we overcome bioscarer in a way in in the 2020s if we want to start putting libraries into the world? So how do we do that? But I think the big step is how do we get people to not be scared of these libraries in the first place? Yeah, um, I think we have to talk about another type of technology. Dreams. Dreams are not only things that happen when we fall asleep, they're actually a form of technology. So dreams are technology that we use to organize ourselves and others. And to keep this simple, there's two types of dreams, the nightmare and the positive aspirational dream. Both are very valid ways of organizing ourselves and others, but they come with different costs and benefits. The nightmare is very easy to use to get attention quickly, but the cost is you will not get sufficient collective action until enough people believe the nightmare is real. The best example of this we're all living through is when Vice President Gore decided to tell a story about the future of the climate, and he called his story an inconvenient truth. And he told a story about the future of the climate, which is pretty bad. And in doing so, he's following in the grand tradition, going back a century, of people warning about how burning coal and other fossils would cause climate warming. He's not wrong from a physics perspective, but from a narrative structure perspective, he made a choice about how to be a leader, and he chose the nightmare frame of reference. And it comes with this hidden cost that we're now experiencing. You will not get sufficient collective action until enough people believe it's real. So his choice and other leaders' choices around climate change has made climate crisis and climate emergency inevitable. So let's just keep going. What would it, what would have been the different choice? Um, wow, Albert, Dan, did you know there's gonna be so much carbon in the atmosphere? We're gonna have increasing amounts of carbon in the atmosphere. This is a climate possibility. There are climate opportunities here. We could make the climate awesome. Now, these words are funny because we haven't grown up in a world exploring this narrative and broadcasting it, right? So they feel strange, but it's valid, right? Um, Martin Luther King Jr., when he gave his civil rights speech, one of his more famous ones, his speech was not, not like, I have a nightmare. 
although he had every right to have a nightmare. His speech was not, I have an executive order. I have a bioeconomy blueprint, right? Even though he needed to have a plan, he needed to have a blueprint. His speech was, I have a dream. And underneath that word was a positive aspirational vision for the future. It's riskier to put that forward because you might be laughed at, you might be wrong, you might be killed, right? But if you can do it, you can create a movement that allows for organization and collective action in advance of reality, right? Co-laboring towards something aspirational. So dreams are tools and there's different types of dreams and we have choices in which ones we go to adopt. I believe we have all grown up in a frame that's been dominated by nightmare dreams, which is a cop out, cheap way out, lame. And it's up to us if we're courageous enough to figure out how to put forward the positive aspirational dream and the risks associated with that as you surface those. Um, so let me try, right? But but mostly I'm trying because I hope you'll see this as an example and you and others hearing this will do more, right? Um, there's a reason, by the way, that in the pre-recordings, we chose to broadcast at Symbio Beta before Ahmed and I walked on the stage. One of the recordings I selected was Greta, the climate activist, this wonderful interview with her, with the BBC, that's on YouTube with the title, I'm not an angry teenager, right? I found that interview so interesting. It's a beautiful interview, right? Because what's going on is the Gore generation is doing this baton pass to the Greta generation, you all, and the baton that's being passed from the Gore generation to the Greta generation is a flaming baton of shit. Sorry to be so dramatic. And who wants that? You'd be right to be angry at that. So, okay, let me try to go positive. The physics of flourishing have actually never been better. Renewable energy generation is looking pretty good. If we kept going on that, buyer before 2035 will be electricity generation abundant on the planet. It's never been true before. So that handles the joules, the energy, the J-O-U-L-E-S. If we get to that, then we don't have to worry about the bits. And we actually don't have to worry about the atoms because the biology can handle that. And we can power the biology with carbon that we can generate from power if we need and water, which we can generate from power if we need, and we're done, right? So the physics of flourishing have never been better. Like buyer before the year 2050, you could enable on this planet up to 10 billion humans flourishing in partnership with the rest of life on earth. To do that this decade, we have to make the capacities real that don't exist. We have to deploy those capacities in the 2030s such that people are equipped with what they need where they need it. And in the 2040s, we get it done, right? And we're done, right? In this operational sense. But but so it's like, those are the table stakes. And if you wanted to create a political movement sufficient to cause the things to happen at the scales needed, including unlocking biology as a general purpose technology, you better be thinking about creating a cultural political movement at that sort of scale, with that sort of footing, with that sort of urgency and agency and aspiration and positivity. Because what's gonna happen by default, I would guess, and I don't have to guess, right, is the entrenched negative stories that are about scarcity are gonna get more dire and more urgent and more exploitable by people who wanna maintain status quo relationships and power positions in a context that gets increasingly desperate. All right, so it's like stakes are already pretty high, they're gonna get higher. And it's easy for anybody to be caught up in the nightmare narratives including us, right? And so it's like, okay, choose what to do. Very One of the things powerful. I like about president, like I'm a lowercase p patriot in the United States, you know, and, and so I just want to acknowledge like one of the things I like about President Biden is he talks about America and when he tries to represent it, United States of America, excuse me, in one word, he says about possibilities. And he means that in a positive way. I really like that. 
Now, somebody has to step up to his challenge. Some buddies have to step up to his challenge and um, make it happen. That's awesome. I think we've both heard you speak a couple of times before, and you you always mention we need to get a, a bio-based society buyer before 2050. And this whole discussion on on dreams is, and especially positive dreams, is very powerful. And we're very curious as to what programmatic steps, as you mentioned earlier, you're currently taking to help build this cultural movement and help propel this kind of younger generation, the the Gretas, as you as you coined us, into really talking about this as dreams and really pushing it forward. And what can be done by us and helping push this forward by the younger you're, generation the of students? The answer to your question is what you're doing. You're doing it, right? Like we're talking about it right now because you have this platform, right? And you're doing the other things, right? What am I doing? I'm like the midwife, the doula. There's a generation being born from the old one. And I'm, I just happen to be of an age of an in-between time. Right. And, uh, and it's like this generation that's arising into being born into its professional power and capacities. Right. It's like going a little bit sideways, but it's going to be good. Right. And I'm just like trying to lightly intervene in the moments and, and I, I have and in the with the energy I've got left. Um, but but it's the answer to your question is what's happening right now. Um and it's tricky, right? Because it it comes with a lot of risk, right? So you've got everyone has to take care, right? Navigating these sorts of issues. So you talked about you. Well, one of the things, the big things that you mentioned is the future steps that we have to take to make a bioeconomy, and like you said, that comes down to this generation, um, because we're the ones who you know, have the careers ahead of us to just push this forward. And I think one of the most meaningful things that we could ask is if you had a piece of advice for the next generation of synthetic biologists that are, that you would like to make this bioeconomy happen, create these. I love the idea of libraries. It's really, really exciting. You know, if, if you were to have advice to people who were to do this in the next coming 10, 20 years, what would be some advice for them? Figure out your worst case scenario and make sure it's okay. Right. So if you're going to take risks, make sure that if you fail, where you land is okay. Even if it's not where you want to be, it's okay. Right. So just, and this is, this is broader than talking about the bioeconomy. But just like in general, if you're going to take risks, like make sure your worst case scenario is going to be okay. That's something you can fall back on. For me, when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was a civil engineer and I had job offers doing construction management. Right. And it's so exciting because like I like to build things, but I also knew I didn't really want to go have a career in construction management. It wasn't what I was most excited about. But knowing that I had gotten to that point, you know, that I could fall back and do that was incredibly liberating. And before that, before I was finishing my bachelor's degree, I was a telemarketer and I was a roofer, you know, like replacing roofs on houses, asphalt shingles. Um, and I could earn an income doing those things. Right. And so that was my worst case scenario. Right. Um, and so, and so if you're going to take risks, you know, like see what you can do either by yourself or through your family or your friends or your community to make sure that you've got your own version of a safety net that you can count on that gives you the internal comfort to then take a risk, right? Because, you know, worst case, you can just sort of fall back and regroup and, and you know, appreciate what happened and maybe go again. So just I just think like it's important to acknowledge that when you're trying to do new things or risky things, you you've got to have you you can just you know what my ten year old would say risk it for the biscuit, right? And just be irresponsible, but I wouldn't recommend that, right? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't YOLO your life, right? And and so I just want to like I just want to point that out, right? Um, 
Um, and then, you know, it's a combination of things and there's no one prescription, right? Each person's going to find their own way to motivate themselves and others. And so it's important to understand how you do that for yourself, right? But at some point it involves talking to other people, broadcasting and listening, uh, both. Like I remember in um, 1999, here's gonna be a funny little anecdote. I was sitting at my computer and I checked my email inbox and I, I don't think I had any email in my inbox. And I was just doing some work and thinking. And I was like, this isn't right. I have a lot of neat ideas. Like I have a lot of things that, that might be important to say. And I'm not getting any email. Like, that's not right. And so I was just sort of diagnosing that I was doing something wrong. That I wasn't getting any emails. <laughs> right? And so that, when I debug that, I'm like, well, I need to talk about what I think. Even though I don't like to talk about what I think, believe it or not. Right? Like, that seems strange now. Um, and so I started just talking about what I think. And that means you're starting to broadcast information into the universe. And what's interesting is sometimes you'll get a signal that reflects back that's interesting, right? Not very often, but sometimes, right? So when I started broadcasting in the universe, well, it's really hard for me to model natural biological systems. I'm gonna have to rebuild them so that they're modelable. Like that mostly just like started talking about that with my the people in the office, right? Just like going to meetings, talking about that. Nothing much happened for a couple of years, but then maybe 30 months later, the signal came back from this guy um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He said, of course, the code is 4 billion years old. It's time for a rewrite. I was like, who are you? Right, like that was an interesting, coherent signal responding to my ping with a lot more power coming back. And that was Tom Knight. Like, I need to go there. Like, who's this guy? And I was like, I'm going there. Right. So, so it's interesting. It's, it's like understanding what you think and having the confidence to talk about it and broadcast it and then be patient and listen for coherent signals to find the people who you can vibe with, who want to work with you. Um, that's really important. And it's important because it's genuine and is better than what most people think you need to do, right? What most people think you need to do is, oh, this person is very successful and famous. And so I need to get their attention and their approval to do the thing I think is important, right? And that almost never works, right? Like Eric Schmidt is very successful and very famous. And he even thinks the bioeconomy is very important. I should get Eric to agree with what I think is important so that maybe he'll help me. If I do that, I'm making a mistake because the chances are um, he probably won't agree with me exactly and I'll get swept up into his gravitational well of power and I'll be consumed and do things like industrialized biology or whatever's happening, right? The same thing happened with what became the iGEM competition. You know, it's like when we were starting the iGEM competition, we were working with the people who wanted to work with us because the United States government didn't want to work with us. They were scared of bioterrorism. The only people who wanted to work with us were the teenagers matriculating to MIT who wanted to become biological engineers before there was a major. It's like work with the people who want to work with you because they get it. They're vibing correctly. And then when we turned it into something that was more than one school, um, you know, we went to the places where we had friends who we knew we're already vibing in this way. And if we made mistakes, they wouldn't yell at us too much. They would only yell at us a little bit so that we could try again, right? So so this is really important actually. You know, it's like have the confidence in what you think is important as you figure it out to start talking about it. And then find the people who wanna work with you on that as opposed to the people who you think you need approval from, right? Yeah. Now, these are all generic comments, right? Again, not unique or specific to advancing a bioeconomy or biotic society, but but they're just, they're, they're useful. They're profoundly useful, nevertheless, right? Not I was not. talking with Kim Stanley Robinson 
uh, aka Stan Robinson. He's one of the great uh, living American science fiction authors. He did Red Mars, Blue Mars, Green Mars, uh, Ministry for the Future, things like that. A wonderful storyteller. And I asked him, have you ever um, written about the future where things are pretty awesome? He's like, not really, he said. There's a few exceptions, right? There's not a lot of drama in telling the story of everything working out, right? But I bet there's a lot of drama in telling the story of the struggles of how we got there, right? How do we get from here to there? Right. So maybe some hearing this will find their own voice and become the storytellers of the struggle of between now and then when things are flourishing. Um, you know, Ahmed Best has this idea of a TV series. You know, Star Trek starts in the next century and things are pretty good when the United Federation of Planets is founded in San Francisco over a hundred years from now. But like, how do we get from 2023 to then? You know, like, how do we get to there? Like, that'd be a really interesting TV show. Um, let's make that TV show. Um, let's make those movies. And on that note, stay tuned for for the movies, which can't wait for them to come out. But Dr. Dandy, thank you so much for, for the insight. This was really, 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 really fascinating. And I think we gained a lot of insight into sort of how synthetic biology started off and how it like just the exciting possibilities that it has to go in the future. I think there's so much, we're just getting started. And I think it's a it's a shift of thinking of it as a, as a revolution, an industrial revolution to basically rewiring society and rewiring the economy to be able to accommodate for like a bioeconomy. Um, and thank you for, for sharing those thoughts. Really, 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 really appreciate it. Albert and Dan, thank you for what you're doing and your questions and conversation and prompts. Grateful to know you both. <laughs>